Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Renaissance on this uh, beautiful daylight savings time morning in the spring, which is my least favorite day of the year. I like the one in the fall a lot better with that extra hours. I'm actually really impressed that uh, everybody came out this morning and set your clocks ahead and all that. My name is Clay. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I'd love to uh, say, hi, say hi to you afterwards. I'll be hanging out up front here. So uh, don't be shy. Come on up introduce yourself, and uh, let's chat for a couple of minutes. So last month, there was a wedding uh, on a small island uh, off the coast of Scotland. And uh, about a week or so before the wedding, mom bought a dress, and she decided that she wanted to check it out with her daughter, which is always a good move. If you have a daughter and you're having a wedding, moms, make sure you check out the uh, color of the dress with your daughter beforehand. So mom sent a, took a picture of the dress, sent a picture of this dress to her daughter. Her daughter shows it to her fiance and they have their first fight because they couldn't actually d agree on the color of the dress. So they call a bunch of their friends and they say, hey, what color is this dress? Their friends can't agree as to what color the dress is. They show the dress to the band and the band can't agree as to which color the dress is. So somebody gets the bright idea that they're gonna post the picture of the dress on Tumblr, which is one of those internet picture sort of sites. And at that point, the internet breaks, right? This is, we've got the picture up here of the dress that broke the internet. The original post on Tumblr received 73 million hits. 73 million people had nothing better to do with their time than argue about what color the dress is. In fact, the, the website BuzzFeed said that on their website, because they had about literally 30 or 40 articles that they wrote about this dress, at one point, 670,000 people were viewing the picture of the dress at the same time. 670,000 people doing this. Uh, it was this uh, Thursday night after the dress was posted, right? Everybody's looking at this thing like 140,000 people per minute, except during the one-hour period when American Idol was on, and then everybody took a break to watch American Idol, and they go back to this thing. And then last week on American Idol, if you watch it, how many of you saw that? One of the women wore the dress. She had a copy of the dress on American Idol. So I like, what is going on with this dress? So how many of you think that this dress is white and gold? Raise your hands. Okay, that's actually the majority of people on the internet said it was white and gold. How many of you think it was blue and black? How many of you could not care less? There you go. Okay, just to set the record straight, the dress actually is blue and black. When somebody actually went and looked at the dress, it really is blue and black, but the problem is it was a lousy picture. It was overexposed. The light was coming in from the side, and so it looks to most people like it is uh, white and gold. Don't people have anything better to do than vote, you know, and argue about what color this dress is? I have to admit, I actually spent more than a couple of minutes trying to figure out what color the dress is. I almost got out some, you know, like photo tools and sort of try to figure out, you know, and let the computer tell me what color it is and, and all of that. But, you know, it, it is easy to, I won't ask how many of you, you know, in, interrupted your lives to spend time on this dress, but it is easy to get caught up and stuff like that, you know, and that's why one of the websites is called BuzzFeed, because they're just talking about all the buzz, you know, that's going on in the, on the internet. 
And, and you sort of think that this is a modern-day phenomenon that, did, that didn't really exist before the Internet existed. But in fact, well, they didn't argue about what color dresses were in Jesus' day. You did have this phenomenon of crowds just getting all excited over something and not necessarily knowing what's really going on behind it. And so today, I want us to spend a little bit of time looking at two incidents from Jesus' life in which the crowds, in which the people just got caught up in the buzz. They got caught up in what was going on, and they weren't necessarily thinking really deeply about that. And the first incident occurred on what we know as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday being the Sunday before Easter, and we're going to be celebrating that uh, later this month, the Sunday before Easter in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem and people are waving their palm branches, uh, you know, and things like that. So I want to read a, a, a portion of Matthew's uh, account. Matthew was one of Jesus' biographers. I want to read a portion of Matthew's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord has need of them, and he'll send them right away. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So you got to picture this scene here, right? Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem. He's riding on this donkey. People are laying their coats on the ground so that the donkey's feet don't even touch the ground. They've cut down branches, probably palm tree branches, spread them out on the road. They're waving them. It's kind of like the first century equivalent of what we would say today is a ticker tape parade. They're celebrating that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And behind all of that, you've got to understand that during this time in Israel's history, they're under Roman rule. They're under Roman domination, and they don't like it because the Romans have come in, they've conquered Israel, and they're ruling the land. And so the people are looking for somebody to deliver them from the Romans, and they're thinking maybe, just maybe, Jesus is the one who's going to do this. So he's entering into Jerusalem, and people are getting caught up in the moment. They're getting caught up in the excitement of what's going on, and they're treating him like he's this conquering hero, like he's their king who's entering into Jerusalem in, in high style and triumphant fashion. And they're shouting out, Hosanna, which means save. And they're essentially saying, he's our savior. Here's our savior riding into Jerusalem and they're celebrating, and they're all excited about it, and everybody is joining into the excitement of that moment. And so that's what's going on 
on that Sunday. They're hailing Jesus as their savior. They're hailing him as their king. But by Friday, five days later, everything has changed. Instead of being hailed as the king, Jesus is on trial for his life. He's before the Roman governor, a man named Pilate. He's been accused of capital crimes, and he's on trial for his life. And Pilate, Pilate actually doesn't want to execute Jesus. He's not in favor of what the people want at this point with Jesus. And Pilate's wife had a dream the night before in which she was warned, don't have anything to do with this man. He's innocent. And so Pilate's getting pressured from both sides. On the one side, he's got the people who are calling for Jesus' crucifixion. On the other side, he's got his wife who's saying, don't have anything to do with this man. Like you could make a movie about this thing. And and actually, they've made movies about this. And you've got this tension. And all is going on here. And let's pick up the action here uh, in verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. See, there was a tradition at that time where the Roman governor would release for the Jews any one prisoner that they wanted him to release during the celebration of Passover. And Pilate is figuring, this is the way that I'm going to get out of this dilemma. So he offers to release for them either Barabbas or Jesus. And he's hoping that they're going to say, go ahead and release Jesus. But the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders, these are the religious authorities, they persuaded the people to ask the, to ask for Barabbas to be released and to have Jesus executed. Pilate says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all said, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he says, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility, he says to the crowd. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and it's on our children. And then Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. On Sunday, they're hailing Jesus as their king, as their savior, as their conquering hero. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And on Friday, they're saying, crucify him. His blood is on us. How can it be that on Sunday, they're hailing him as their king? And on Friday, they want to have him crucified. What's going on? What happened that changed so quickly what the crowd was thinking about this? One of Jesus' other biographers, a man named John, he was Jesus' best earthly friend on earth. He wrote uh, an excerpt. He wrote a section in his biography of Jesus where he talks about the same incident, but he adds just a short little editorial comment, and John does this over and over and over again in his gospel. He gives these little editorial comments that kind of get behind what's going on to help us to understand what's really going on behind the scenes. And John puts it this way. He says... At first, Jesus' disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. What John is saying is that on Sunday, when the crowds are shouting Hosanna, 
they didn't really understand what they were saying. He actually says that the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, his closest followers, didn't understand what was going on. And if his disciples, if his closest followers didn't really understand what was being said, then the crowds who have much less idea of what's going on, of course they don't understand it. So they're just caught up in the excitement of the moment. They're like, yeah, this is the guy, but there's no real depth to it. It's like 73 million people who actually don't care about the colors of dresses all have to register their opinion about the color of this $75 dress. Same thing is going on on Palm Sunday. These people really don't understand what's going on, but they're caught up in the excitement of the moment, and they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Here's the guy. This is our Messiah. This is our Savior. But then by Friday, everything had changed. And one of the things that the crowds missed was the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew says, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, a conquering king is not going to ride in on a donkey. He's going to ride in on a white stallion. He's going to come in on a, on a war horse, a symbol of power and a symbol of strength. A donkey's not a symbol of power. It's not a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of, of humility, of weakness, of meekness. And so you've almost got this contradiction in terms with your king coming in on a donkey because that's not what you would expect a king to be riding on. They expected that their king was going to come in power to conquer and to rule and to reign with power. But instead, Jesus comes into Jerusalem with humility and with meekness. He comes, yes, ultimately to conquer, but he's conquering not through power. He's ultimately going to conquer through his death. And that was predicted ahead of time in the Old Testament but they didn't understand it at the time. So they missed the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey. So on Sunday, he's their savior. By Friday, he's just a common criminal. He's one who they think is deserving of death. On Sunday, he's kind of the dress who broke the internet. He's the, you know, he's the man and everybody's excited. Everybody's caught up in it. But by Friday... That is so last week. That was Sunday. That is gone. That's past. Here we are today. Crucify him. His blood's going to be on us. So let's go back to Friday. In, Pilate's res in, in, in response to Pilate's desire to release Jesus, to avoid responsibility for his death, the crowd says, his blood is on us. It's on our children. But you know what? I don't think that they were really seriously saying, we'll take responsibility for his death. Yeah, that's the words that they were saying, but I don't think that they really understood what they were saying on Friday any more than they understood what they were saying on Sunday. They no more meant his blood is on us than they meant Hosanna to the son of David. Because see, on Sunday, the momentum was with Jesus. On Friday, the momentum is with the religious authorities. It's against Jesus. And so they switched sides. They didn't really mean 
His blood is on us and on our children, but they should have. They absolutely should have meant what they said because they were responsible for Jesus' death. The crowds, the people were responsible for Jesus' death when they called for Barabbas' release and Jesus' crucifixion. But so were the religious leaders. They were responsible for Jesus' death. And in spite of his washing of his hands, Pilate was responsible for Jesus' death. And so am I. And so are we. All of us ultimately are responsible for Jesus' death. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for our sins. He didn't die for his own sins because he was sinless. He died in our place. And so his blood is ultimately on me because I'm responsible for his death. And that's at the core of the Christian faith. But that's not the only way in which Jesus' death, which Jesus' blood is on me. Jesus' blood is also on me because his death leads to my life. I'm responsible for his death. His death is responsible for my life. Because Jesus died, I can live. His death brings life to me. That's the move from death to life. But in order for his death to bring life to me, I need to embrace the fact that his blood is on me, both in terms of my responsibility for his death, but also in terms of the fact that his death, his blood, is what cleanses me from my sin. It's what atones for my sin. It's what pays for my sin. It's what God looks at, and when he sees the blood of Jesus, he says, your sin is forgiven if you're trusting in me. And I can't truly shout, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, until I honestly believe that his blood is on me. But when I do believe that his blood is on me, I won't be able to stop shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. When I realize the incredible gift that he's given me, when I realize the love that he showed me, not because I deserved it, not because I did anything to earn it, but because that's the kind of God whom he is, because he's a God of love, he's a God of grace, he's a God of forgiveness, or as we talked about in our last series, he's a God of one-way love. When I realize that, that in that sense, his blood is on me. I'm not going to be able to stop praising God. I'm not going to be able to stop shouting Hosanna because I realize how much he loves me. I've been a follower of Jesus for over 40 years, and I have sung praise to God. I've said praise to God. I've shouted praise to God more times than I can count. But one of the difficulties is sometimes my heart's not fully in it. Sometimes it's just words that are coming out of my mouth. Sometimes it's kind of like the crowds on Palm Sunday. I'm caught up in the moment. I'm caught up in the emotion. I'm caught up in the excitement. But maybe my mind is kind of wandering somewhere else. And what I've got to do in those moments, what I actually have to do for myself 
pretty much every day of my life is bring myself back to the cross, bring myself back to the blood of Christ, bring, bring myself back to the fact that his blood is on me, not for the goal of making myself feel bad or making myself feel guilty or berating myself or anything like that, but really to bring myself back to that core, to that foundation of my faith in Christ. And when I do that, when I come back to the cross, when I come back to the fact that Jesus' blood is on me, God works in my heart. And then the praise that comes out of my mouth is not just a, a recitation of, of what could be meaningless words, but instead it's a cry of my heart. It's a cry of a heart that's so enamored with who God is, with who Jesus is, and what he's done, that it's an overflow of what's really going, what's really going on in my heart. So that when I'm thankful that Jesus' blood is on me, that's when I can sing Hosanna to the Son of David and really mean it. In a few minutes, the band is going to come back out, and uh, we're going to sing one more song together. But before we do that, I want to point out one more aspect of Palm Sunday that I think the crowds missed. Their shouts, when they're shouting Hosanna, that's looking back to the Old Testament book of Psalms and to Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, verse 25, it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And as I mentioned earlier, the word Hosanna comes from the word save. And so when in the Psalms they're saying, Lord, save us, they're essentially saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, God bless us. Praise to God in this way. And it continues on and it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He's made his light shine on us with boughs in hand, with palm branches in our hand. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. The altar is in the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. A thousand years before Jesus came to the earth, the psalmist wrote and said, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Let's go up to Jerusalem with boughs, with palm branches in our hands. Let's go up in a procession. Let's go up in a parade to Jerusalem. All this was predicted and talked about a thousand years before Jesus came on the earth. But interestingly, ironically in a sense, the verses that come just before these in Psalm 118 talk not about Palm Sunday, but they talk about Good Friday. Watch what happens here. Psalm 118 verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let's rejoice and be glad. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. When the religious leaders, when the crowds were calling for Jesus' crucifixion, they're rejecting the stone. But that stone, Jesus, that was rejected, who was killed, has ultimately become the cornerstone of our faith. His death is the foundation of our faith. His death is what brings us life. His death is what reconciles us to the God in heaven who created us and who wants to have 
a relationship with us. The crowd rejected Jesus and that led to his death, but his death ultimately leads to our life. And so as we put that all together, when we realize that Jesus' blood is on us, that's the cornerstone, that's the foundation of our faith. And as a result, we can sing praise to God, we can shout Hosanna, and we can mean it. Let's sing together in praise to God.